Aren't you glad you live in America? Amen. You know, if you've had the privilege to travel abroad, as a lot of us in the, in the church have had to do, you realize just how precious the freedoms that we do have here in America are. And then you realize how lightly we take those freedoms for granted. And so today I just kind of want to have a word of prayer, thanking God for our country, thanking God for the privilege of living in this nation with all of its freedoms and joys and blessings. Yes, there's problems, but there's also uh, good people who are working on those problems as well. Would you pray with us, please? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you tell us that nations rise and fall at your bidding. And Lord, in the providence of God, so over 200 years ago, you established this nation. Lord, on Christian values, Christian principles, the Judeo-Christian work ethic, Judeo-Christian uh, government values, and a system of representation of the people and by the people and for the people. Lord, we're not a perfect country. We're not a sinless country. But Lord, we are a country that has been blessed by your hand, and we thank you for that. Lord, there are many issues in our world today across the globe. There, there are famines and disease. There's issues of war and terrorism. But Lord, across our country, there are also parents raising their kids by godly values. There are folks who care about their neighbors, folks who get involved in their community, seek political uh, responses to things that are corrupt and not what they ought to be. Father, I want to thank you for the men and women in the armed forces who are currently serving or who have served to protect the freedoms that I enjoy and that my children enjoy. And I thank you for them. Watch over our troops, whether a home or on foreign soil or on distant seas. Bless them and honor them. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise your name. And we just thank you for the privilege of living in this country. In your name we pray and everybody says amen Amen and amen. Hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but we are recording all of the sermons uh, and music on on a CD format. And so if you would like one, you can get them, you can place an order and purchase them, $3 at the script table or the script booth, and you can either get a two-set volume or a one-set of that particular Sunday, and so uh, just let them know your needs. Also, registration begins after service for our uh, World's Greatest Vacation Bible School coming up uh, two weeks from tomorrow. And there will be people outside saying, we need your help, and yes, you will help. All right, and you will find a place to jump in and get involved. This is an easy place to do. It's exciting. A lot of things going on. J2 will be having a tailgate party again, and and, uh, kids will be learning the Word of God. And if you're not good with kids, but you're good with passing out snacks, we need you. And so make sure that you get all the stuff uh, checked off. You'll get a little slip of paper that looks like this, 
and, uh, and make sure you take care of that. Joshua's men needs to meet in James Miller's classroom right after the service today. And so we're just glad that you're here uh, on this 4th of July weekend. Tonight, today I want to talk to you, and really I'm going to cram bukus of material in uh, to make up for last week, and uh, appreciate Tommy doing a great job. And I want to talk to you today, does God believe in dinosaurs? Does God believe in dinosaurs? Growing up in public high school and with several years of a secular university training, I was fed the classical evolutionary line. It goes something like this, 18 to 20 billion years ago, the universe began. From what it began from, nobody really knows. Where did the materials come from? Not sure. What we're told is that something came from nothing 18 to 20 million years ago, and it just was this big bang. Gravitational forces, magnetic fields, nuclear forces spun galaxies, nebulous solar systems, stars, and planets into place as it continues to expand farther away from one another. One of those astronomical bodies we have named Earth. About three billion years ago on Earth, the molten crust began to cool. Condensation began to gather, and as the Earth cooled, it began to rain. It rained and rained and rained. Matter of fact, it rained for so long that oceans were formed, and it rained on the rocks. And the water and the minerals in the rocks, because of the rain, eroded into pools and kind of formed this kind of primeval soup. And so the next time you eat Campbell's soup, hog it and say, hi, great, 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 great granddaddy. And from the rocks on the rain came non-life. And 235 million years ago, dinosaurs first evolved well long before man. That's the common story. The most exciting animal that are given to move that evolutionary image forward is the dinosaur. And as far as most people are concerned, evolution and dinosaurs go hand in hand. And dinosaurs have been used almost more than anything else to convince children and adults alike that there are, you know, this thing of of evolution, that it's true, and that there's millions of years of Earth's history. And this was a big issue for my faith. I'll be honest with you, I didn't understand. Because in my church, we were so quiet on this issue of dinosaurs... And of evolution. My preacher would preach that on the first day, you know, God said, let there be light. And the second day separated the firmament. And the third day and the fourth day. But nary a word, do you like that? Nary a word was said about dinosaurs. And it was a challenge to my faith. And I always wondered, does, does God believe in dinosaurs? See, we've been told that dinosaurs evolved 235 million years ago, and then mysteriously, somehow, due to some unknown explanation, we don't know what happened to them, but they all disappeared 65 million years ago, and we have the fossil record to prove it. So before we look at dinosaurs, I do kind of want to give a little attention to the fossil record, because we've all seen them in the science museums, you know, uh, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, or... uh, Sagatorus or, or all of the, you know, others, different dinosaurs that are there, Triceratops, in these fossil records, uh, because professors will teach evolution presents a fossil record that is whole and complete. However, paleontologists, archaeologists, and 
anthropologists know that there are huge gaps in the fossil records. That there should be, if evolution is true, that we evolved from a lower form to a higher form, that there should be transitional fossils and intermediary form, fossil forms at different strata levels in the geological column that makes up the Earth's crust. Let me give you some quotes. Colin Patterson senior paleontologist of the prestigious British Museum of Natural History, which houses the world's largest fossil collection, 60 million specimens in all. He confessed, if I knew of any evolutionary transitions, fossils or living, I would certainly have included them in my book called Evolution. Here's another quote. Darwin had an excuse. In his day, fossils were relatively scarce. Today, however, more than a century after his death, we have an abundance of fossils. Still, we have yet to find one legitimate transition from one species or kind to another. Dave Rupp, the curator of the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, where a lot of us have been underscores this fact, and I finish his quote. We are now about 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. We have fewer examples of evolutionary transition today than we had in Darwin's time. Isn't that amazing? A leading Harvard evolutionist stated this, the extreme rarity of transitional forms from one, you know, from a lower to a higher, if the extreme rarity of transitional forms persists as a trade secret of paleontology. Concerning fossil transactions, Stephen Jay Gould, and I talked about him several weeks ago when we talked about how evolution is a, is a philosophy and it permeated the scientific community through, through atheism and then evolution. But Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard University and Niles Etheridge of the American Museum of Natural History, both militant anti-creationists and, and very staunch atheists, say this. At the higher level of evolutionary transition between morphological design, gradualism has always been in trouble. Uniformitarianism that says that you can understand the past by examining the present. He said, no, that's wrong. We're in trouble. Though it remains the official position of most Western evolutionists, smoother intermediates between ball plane, which is basically the different types of creatures, are almost impossible to construct even in thought experiments. Not scientific experiments, even in thought experiments, there is certainly no evidence for them in the fossil record. Newsweek summarized the sentiments of leading evolutionists that had gathered in Chicago for a, a conference on the gaps in the fossil records. And here's their quote, evidence from fossils now point overwhelmingly away from classical Darwinism and evolution, which most Americans learned in high school. Rather than becoming creationists, however, evolutionists have simply become more creative. End of quote. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not quotes from 100 years ago. These are leading authority figures in our culture, in our day, saying, hey, we cannot find the evidence to support what we believe about evolution. 
Probably no other statement as, as, as clear as the one that Colin Patterson and I alluded to him earlier when he admitted this. And he quote, and I quote him, quote, for over 20 years, I thought I was working on evolution, but there was one thing I knew about. So for the last few weeks, I tried putting a simple question to various people and groups of people. Question is, can you tell me anything you know about evolution? Any one thing, any one thing that is true. I continue. I tried that question on the geology staff at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. And the only answer I got was silence. I tried it on the members of the Evolutionary Morphology Seminar at the University of Chicago, a very prestigious body of evolutionists, and all I got there was silence. And for a long time, and eventually one person said, yes, I do know one thing, it ought not to be taught in high school. During the past few years, I'm continuing to quote this leading evolutionist. During the past few years, you have experienced a shift from evolutionist knowledge to evolutionist faith. Evolution not only conveys no knowledge, it seems somehow to convey anti-knowledge. Listen, the leading proponents of the day are struggling with this whole thing of, of evolution. If you know anything about the fossil record, they tout carbon-14 dating, which is the most modern radiometric dating system. And I'm not going to go into the whole detail of what's on the screen. I just simply want to explain that when carbon hits the Earth's atmosphere, 21 pounds of of nitrogen is turned into carbon-14. This radioactive carbon-14, I want you to know how scientific I am, slowly decays back into normal, stable nitrogen. Extensive laboratory research has shown that a half of the carbon-14 molecules will decay in 5,730 years. That's where we get the half-life. And so it goes from a full to a half, 5,730 years, from a half to a fourth, 5,730 years, from a fourth to an eighth, from an eighth to a sixteenth, from a sixteenth to a thirty-second, from a thirty-second to a a sixty-fourth, from a sixty-fourth to a one-twenty-eighth. Theoretically, it never goes away. However, science knows that after five half-lives, this method becomes ineffective. Now, for years, they have used this as the predominant dating method to date fossils that have that have ages that they tell us of 64 million to 150 million years ago. However, by their own technology and their own scientific standards, they know that it cannot accurately date things very much past 40,000 years. Well, you don't read that in the Field Museum in Chicago, do you? And then you have the, you have the issue is, is the rate of increase and the rate of decay the same? In fact, with all the global warming issues and things that have come up, they've tracked this thing since 1950, and they found that, that the carbon-14 whole process is not a steady barometer. In fact, the rate of carbon-14 in the atmosphere is increasing, not steady, not decreasing. Basically, it throws all of their models of time in the fossil record out of skew. 
Probably nothing has done more to damage the theory of dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years ago than a recent archaeological find by evolutionist Mary H. Schweitzer of North Carolina State University. She has discovered flexible blood vessels inside the fossilized thigh bone of a 68 to 70-year, million-year-old Tyrannosaurus rex. So I, I want you to understand that in the Hell Creek area of Montana, she found this fossil, and inside this fossil, there was, there was fiber, DNA. Now, there's no Jurassic Park going on here. I want to assure you of that. But let me quote. She said, even to the untrained eye, the tissue samples looked as if the animal died recently. Fibrous protein materials has dissolved with an enzyme named colliginase, indicating that amino acid sequencing could probably be done. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Although it's too early to make a definite statement regarding this stunning and totally unexpected find, the evidence seemed to indicate that T-Rex fossil is, well, young. Not millions and millions of years old. She seems to think centuries old. Well, now that blows the evolution model out of the water, doesn't it? I quote, I'm quite unaware that, I am quite aware that according to conventional wisdom and models of fossilization, evolution, these structures aren't supposed to be here, but they are here. I was pretty shocked. By the way, this isn't the first time that puzzling soft tissue has been unearthed. Nucleic acid DNA was taken from a wet fossil magnolia leaf, allegedly 117 to 20 million years old. Fragments of genetic material of 800 base pairs long were recovered. And amazingly, considering it does not take long for water to deteriorate and degrade DNA. In other words, that Fossil tissue in Tyrannosaurus rex shouldn't be there. The DNA samples in the magnolia leaf shouldn't be there. And, and, it, and it goes on. Spores of bacteria have been found. The Dominican stingless bee, they, they recovered from amber, thought to be millions and millions of years old. Now they're saying, if you're honest with the evidence, that Tissue and the DNA cannot survive millions and millions of years old. These things can be hundreds of years old, thousands at best. So what are they saying? Well, they're not saying in the beginning God, but we'll say that. See, when you say, does God believe in atheists? He knows it takes great faith. To be an atheist. I mean, what are you going to do with, with the soft tissue of Tyrannosaurus rex that should not be there if Tyrannosaurus rex lived 150 million years ago to 60 million years ago? There is no explanation for why it should be there. So what about dinosaurs? What about dinosaurs? Does God believe in them? People want to know. Why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Ever thought about that? Why aren't dinosaurs talked about in the Bible? Well, the word dinosaur was created in 1841 by Sir Newton Richard, I'm sorry, by Sir Richard Owens, a famous British museum 
uh, director and curator. He was the one who kind of discovered the first dinosaur fossil and came up with the word dinosaur from two Greek words, great lizard kind of thing. And that's why the word dinosaur is not in the Bible. It wasn't invented until 1841. And the King James Bible was translated in 1611 and final revisions in 1649. So that's why it's not in the Bible by name dinosaur. But I do think there are dinosaurs in the Bible. The Bible talks about dragons, flying serpents. Could that be a pterodactyl? Go to the book of Job. And let's see if there's not some dinosaurs here. Job is the oldest book written in the Bible. And after a series of tragic events in which he lost his health and his family and his wealth, except for a nagging old wife, he sits with pus oozing from his sores, having a conversation with three uncomforting friends about God. And God uses nature... And particularly, I think, a dinosaur to describe his power. Look at Job chapter 41. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I do want you to look at verse 1. Can you pull in a Leviathan with a fish hook? Now, if you have a marginal study Bible, sometimes it'll translate that crocodile. It's a poor translation. There are Hebrew words for crocodiles. If God meant crocodile, he would have thrown in the word crocodile. He uses a word called Leviathan. Today we would call this a chronosaurus. I'll talk about him in a minute. But, but basically he's saying, and by the way, this is a National Geographic recreation of what they think a chronosaurus, a Leviathan, looks like. It's what you're looking at on the screen. He says, can you pull in a Leviathan with a fish hook? He's saying, Job, you actually think you can go fishing in a water hole and catch this puppy? Job, somehow you're thinking about me has become so small, I'm going to use the greatest things I've created to show you my greatness and my glory. So he uses a marine creature, a marine dinosaur, this chronosaurus, Leviathan. Or could you tie his tongue down with a rope? Could you put a cord through his nose or or pierce his jaw with a hook? I mean, this is not a little two-pound catfish you're catching here, buddy. This is Leviathan. It measures over 42 feet in length, according to one author. Its skull was flat-topped and massively long, measuring 9 feet, almost a quarter of its total body length, therefore substantially larger and more powerful than that of the great carnivore dinosaurus, Tyrannosaurus rex. It's classified with the group of dinosaurs called pliosaurs. He's considered to be the most powerful swimmer and most highly maneuverable aquamarine dinosaur, allowing it to feed on fish, other marine reptiles, and the abundance of invertebrates. The front teeth are very sharp and pointed, but the rear teeth are more rounded, making it easy to crush the shells and, as have been well designed, to feed on a variety of kelp and sea grasses. He would have been the size of the largest tooth whale. He would have been the size of a sperm whale or bigger. This thing is huge. Leviathan. 
And God trying to reassure Job that he's still in charge, that he's still the God of glory and the God of wonders and the creator of all and that he's not forgotten about. God tries to just, again, describe his glory. Look at verse 5. Can you make a pet out of him like a bird? Now, by the way, I would not want to make a pet out of that. Or can you put him on a leash for your girls? In other words, Job, you don't bring this thing home and say, look, honey, here's what I got for the kids today. Look at verse 9. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? God is saying, listen, Job, you know the Leviathan. Job's the oldest book written years and years before the book of Genesis and Moses ever penned the, the Pentateuch. He's saying, listen, you know the Leviathan, Job. And if I created the Leviathan, what do you think about the creator of the creature, Leviathan? Just one other thing I want to, I, I just kind of want to throw out there at you. Look at, uh, look at verse 15. His back has rows of shields, you know, kind of the real tight scales, tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. You know they have found these in the Chronosaurus, just as the Bible describes. They're joined fast one to another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light, and his eyes are like the rays of dawn. Are you saying, are this is a fire-breathing thing? Probably not. He probably has a snout on the top, kind of like the whales do, and, and, and it just throws out this plume of water that I am sure just looks intimidating as if that doesn't look intimidating enough. And so God says, listen, Job... If you're not able to stand against Leviathan, you're not able to stand against me. Don't question me, Job. Trust me. So God uses one of the greatest marine creatures ever, the Leviathan, the Chronosaurus, to declare his power. Go back to Job chapter 40. Go back one verse. Let's look at the, a land animal that God uses to describe his greatness and look at verse 15. Look at the behemoth which I have made. Now, some marginal notes will put, and by the way, we believe that the behemoth is a brachiosaurus. All right, the brachiosaurus was thought to be the largest land animal ever, and now they have found cousins bigger than the brachiosaurus called the supersaurus or the ultrasaurus. Remember the thing Ultraman? You know, kind of makes you kind of want to think about that. But this thing of, of brachiosaurus is huge. It's huge. Now, again, in the margin of your Bible, how many of you in the margin of your Bible, it says elephant or hippopotamus? Anybody got that there? Good. Now, I just want to kind of make one point. The words of God are inspired. The marginal notes in your study Bibles are not. Let's listen to the description of this thing. Look at verse 15. Look now at behemoth which I made along with you. In other words, it's part of the creation process. Which feeds on grass like an ox. His strength is in his loins. In other words, he has those big, you know, back legs. And uh, 
and the power of his muscles is in his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. Now look at this picture. Get in your mind a mental picture of an elephant tail and a hippopotamus tail. Get a picture. I do not get a picture of a big cedar tree. I may get a picture of a poison ivy, but not a big cedar tree. But here you have Brachiosaurus. The picture up on the screen is supposed to be an accurate kind of ratio between dinosaur and the size of this Brachiosaurus and, and, and man.
By the way, just let me read a couple of more verses. Look at verse 18. His bones are like tubes of bronze. His limbs are like uh, limbs of iron. Look at verse 23. When the river rages, he's not alarmed. He is secure. Though the, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth, can anyone capture him by his eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? Not me, baby. So does the Bible, does God believe in dinosaurs? Absolutely. You say, well, when were they made? Well, uh, depending on the day, if they were made in the water, they were, they were made on the fifth day. If they were made to live on the land, they were made on the sixth day. And I, I could show you a few other passages in the Bible where, where the Bible tells us that dinosaurs could be. But the question is, I think for us, is you kind of might go, okay, so what? So what? Kind of discredit the fossil thing, even though the fossils are there, and, and there has to be a different and better system of dating. And again, evolution was created to buy into an atheistic philosophy and worldview. So what lessons can we learn from the dinosaurs? It's a great question. What lessons can we learn? First of all, I think we can learn that death is an intruder. God never meant for any one of us to die. His initial design was to create this wonderful place called the Garden of Eden where man would live in perfect harmony with him and never die. And man's offspring would live with him and, and live with him. Can you imagine a place where there is no sickness? My goodness, I rarely get sick, but last week I was sure imagining that place, let me tell you. I started preaching last Saturday night. It felt great in Tecumseh, Free Will Baptist Church. And before the thing was over, before the service was over, they had a high pulpit. I mean, they had a high pulpit. And I literally was draped over the pulpit, hanging on to the back, wondering if I was going to faint, pass out. I guess those are the same things. Or do the ever popular thing of throwing up right there in front of God and everybody. And I was hurting. Man, I was really thinking, man, in heaven, there is no more death. God never meant for death to be a part of our experience. Sin entered into the equation. And the Bible said, for as by one man, sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and death by sin. So death was passed to all of us because now all of us have sinned. See, death was this intruder. You say, well, pastor, what happened to the dinosaurs? I personally believe that after Noah's flood or God's flood and Noah's ark and, and all of that happened, that the whole climate and shift changed in, our, in, our, in the world as, as they knew it then and, and, and they died out just through, you know, attrition or, or not being able to adjust quickly to, to climate change. And death was a result of that. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We need to recognize that the wickedness in the world is because of sin. Because man rebelled against God. We can also be reminded that God, who made all things, including dinosaurs, will judge his creation. That's the, that's the point about death. He used the flood to judge all mankind. Because of their willful disobedience and stubbornness against God Almighty. None of us have been in that boat, have we? 
Because God judges sin. He judged it in the Garden of Eden. He judged it in the days of Noah with this great flood. And I want you to know that one day the dinosaurs kind of bear record of this, that there will be a day coming when God will judge all the sin of all the world, of everybody in the world. God does not excuse sin. Matter of fact, that was part of God's little pep talk to Job. He says, listen, I understand you've been through a lot. You've lost your children, lost your health, and you've lost your wealth. But I want you to understand, Job, I'm still God. And if you can't handle my creation, you certainly can't handle the creator. Job, you just have to trust me and keep your heart right because I will judge sin. And he does. He judges sin in your heart and in my heart. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't wink at it like a, a grandfather does, you know, at, uh, at maybe their grandchildren. So cute, or he's just like his mom, he's just like his dad. Well, they deserve that. No, God judges sin. But I also want you to know there's hope. Because the Bible says God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God has provided a way for us to escape sin's consequences. It's not by becoming an atheist and saying that there is no God. It's not by being blind to scientific facts or the scientific community. In fact, what God has provided for us is not intellectual deliverance, because there are some of you in this room, it doesn't matter how much you know the way you're wired, you are always going to have one more question, right? We got into this discussion around my table the other day, Byron and, and Blake and Hannah and I, we were talking in the, 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 if you want to know what we talk about at the table, we were talking about did Neil Armstrong really land on the moon? And his thing was, well, there are some who think because the, the film looks real cheesy and, you know, and not good that it was fake and forged. I looked at him and I said, son, I lived in 1968. Everything on TV looked cheap and cheesy. He said, well, Dad, how do you know? And I said, because I believe that God is the creator of truth and truth exists whether I experience it or not. It is experienced in the realm of God, therefore truth exists. Chew on that a minute. Because it does. You see, death, you were never designed to experience death, but sin entered into the world. And so God judged you as a sinner because the debt of sin was now passed on all of us. But Jesus loved you enough, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the atheist struggles with what he does not believe. You and I today can have confidence in what we do believe. That Jesus loved us enough that he died on the cross so that you and I could have life and have it more abundantly. See, this morning, I, I, I would love to go because I do love the whole scientific thing, but I realize that a lot of you are not 
as into the scientific deal as I am or maybe others in the room. But I do want you to know that the evolutionary timeline and the fossil records, even those that are the leading proponents of it today, struggle with major issues and major gaps and recent discoveries. And does God believe in dinosaurs? Are there dinosaurs in the Bible? I think absolutely. The oldest book in the Bible, Leviathan and Behemoth, declare to be so. And if there's any lessons to be learned, is that God loves you enough that he wants to spend eternity with you. But if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus... That's where you need to start. Matter of fact, would you just bow your heads and would you close your eyes for just a few moments? You see, today, if you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, man, right now is the time you need to give him your heart. You simply need to realize the Bible has answers for your questions. It has responses for your doubt. And if you're here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then right there where you sit, if you'll pray this simple prayer, maybe pray this in your heart. Dear Jesus, I want to thank you that you are the creator of everything, things seen and unseen, things present and things extinct. I want to thank you that you love me enough to die on the cross for my sins. And I want to invite you into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. I want to live for you. You see, at the end of the day, my friends, the book, the Bible is not necessarily a book about dinosaurs. It's a book about how to get to God. But he doesn't skirt the issue. Matter of fact, his conversation with Job was just as natural, talking about Leviathan and Behemoth, as if you and I were to talk about lions and tigers and panda bears today. But God's point to Job was that you can trust me. With what you don't see and what you don't understand, you can trust me. So I wonder if you prayed that prayer in your heart this morning. You asked Jesus to come into your heart and life and nobody's looking around. Nobody in the back, nobody in the front, just me. I'm not trying to trick you and I'm not trying to embarrass you. Just trying to give you an opportunity to just take a first little step of faith and to raise your hand and say, Pastor Mike, I prayed that prayer. I asked Jesus in my heart. I want you to pray for me. I want you just to pray for me that I'll grow in faith. So I wonder if there's anyone you just say, Pastor, I pray that prayer. 
gave Jesus my heart. I wonder if there might be some here and you might be like Job. You just might be struggling in your faith. All the issue is that dinosaurs and fossils, they just might be, be the same that Job had of trust and belief. And there just may be a private struggle, an inner war, a deep pain that God knows about, but you hang on to. And you would just like to raise your hand and say, Pastor, just, just pray for me. Boy, there's, there's some trust issues I'm going through in my faith. Thank you so much. Things I just don't understand. I'm kind of like Job. I feel like I've... Just, just pray for me. Anybody else? Just God bless you. Just put it up and right back down. Would you stand to your feet with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I want to pray for those that raise their hands. Father, I pray that right now you speak to our hearts. God, in a very real way, for those who have those trust issues going on right now, I pray that they just respond as Job did. As he would reaffirm his faith in the God who was his redeemer. And Father, I pray that you would bless. Give them courage to pray, whether in their seat or at an altar of prayer. My prayer is that you speak to their heart and they be obedient and they just respond and recommit to trusting you. Here, heads are bowed. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open. Several of you raised your hands. Why don't you just slip out in the next moment or two and just kneel at the altar and ask God again for his grace and his blessing, his favor, his goodness. Recommit your heart and your life to him. While we wait. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for Dr. Henry M. Morris. A world-renowned, respected scientist and educator who came and talked to our college in a week-long series of meetings about Leviathan and Behemoth and geological strata and the fossil records and the great worldwide flood. And Father began to put pieces in a new order and in a new setting for me and how that just increased my faith. And so Father, I pray, Lord, as we go through these series of, of sermons 
Lord, that you continue to speak to our hearts. For those who are struggling today, my prayer is that you minister to their heart and minister to their need. Father, as our ushers come forward and we receive our Sunday morning tithes and offerings, Father, I pray that you bless the gift and the giver, realizing that for those of us who call Kirby Church our home church, we're commanded by Scripture to support the local church. And that's a form of obedience and it's a form of worship. So, Father, my prayer is, is that we're obedient that we trust you in these days. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. And while uh, they're taking the offering, let me give you a few things that you may not know. Uh, First of all, if you requested the sermon notes from last week, uh, I haven't sent those out yet. I will do that uh, Monday or Tuesday. Um, If you would like today's sermon notes, and there's seven pages, and I only really kinda I really condensed it down to about three. So if you would like um, the sermon notes from today, shoot me an email and I'll just shoot it right back to you and just, you know, this week's sermon notes. uh, And that'll be great. Don't forget to register for Vacation Bible School. Register your kids outside. You'll see where to go. The theme is beach party and just go towards that beachy station out there and, uh, and it'll be great. Also, If you can help, and everybody needs to be involved in helping, man, we need you to be involved. And you can see Erica Miller outside, uh, and she'll have a slip of paper that looks something like that to get you to sign up on. Uh, Today, a little bit of a sad news is today is Kurt and Dee Smith's last Sunday with us. Uh, Kurt has taken the position of general of a um, um, general manager at a Cadillac dealership right outside of. Denver, Colorado, Colorado Springs, kind of in that area. Uh, So we're all going skiing, going to see them uh, again. Uh, But uh, make sure you give them a hug and uh, let them know we love them, appreciate their ministries uh, with us and and, uh, just all the blessings and and pray God's blessings on them and the kids, Ashley and Curtis, as they make transitions as well in these days. And so Kurt and Deanna, we love you guys. ask and just pray God's blessings as uh, you continue your journey and your walk with Christ. Would you stand and we'll be dismissed. I'm going to stay down around front. If you got any questions about the message today, be glad to answer them. And uh, one final prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, how it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And my prayer is, is that we trust you Lord, I am so glad that that your word covers and answers our questions, our doubts, and I thank you for that. May we live in the light of your goodness and the light of your grace this week. In your wonderful name we pray, and everybody says amen. Turn around and shake hands with somebody. Welcome them. Make sure you hug on Kurt and Dee. Let them know we love them.